It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of Athletic Obscura, the podcast that is the home of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. My name is Seth Mormon, and across the table for me, as always, is my good friend Richard Manning. Hello there, and how are you doing, Seth? I'm doing great, Richard. It has been a long, long time. It's been too long, but we'll get into why it's been long, like right now. Why do you tell the uh, fine, fine people that are listening today? Well, it's been a long time because a lot has happened. Um, Last time we released an episode was like February. And I think yeah, I, I look back. It was like end of February. It was, it was ridiculous. But if you click play on this episode, you probably notice something a little bit different. Um, our little dog and pony show is now part of the Electrocast Media family. Woo! And we joined uh, the Winner's Edge lineup of shows. You can check out all the shows on the network at electrocast.com slash podcast. And if you want to check out the other sports-related shows, you can go to electrocast.com slash networks and click on Winner's Edge. And we are so grateful to Electrocast for their partnership. And we invite you to support the sponsors. Indeed. Yep. Uh, Rich, um, we haven't seen each other in in weeks for sure. Yeah. And I think maybe even months. I mean... Yeah. It's been a weird couple of months. I've been super busy. You've been super busy. Both of our jobs uh, we have to travel for. Um, I got a new job since the last time that we uh, Mm -hmm. recorded, and I was actually doing two jobs uh, for a little while, but I am done with all of uh, of that right now. I'm back down to one job. Uh, I just got back from Houston a little bit ago, and uh, you're about ready to travel again. Where are you off to? Yeah. um, Well, I spent last month uh, going to uh, New Orleans and New York in the same trip. That was absolutely (laughs) bizarre. Right. And then tomorrow I'm flying out to New Orleans again. And then it's a rough uh, life. After that, I'm going to uh, Oklahoma City the following week. Yeah. And then I'm off to Dallas and then I'm going to um, uh, uh, Savannah. So. And I just found out that earlier this week that it looks like I'm going to be going to Reno in September. Fantastic. We, so, are we ever going to record again? No, we will. Yes, we will. We will. We, yeah, absolutely. We, we will. have like 15 minutes of time between. You know, we just need to bring mobile microphones or something like the old Mister Mike from the 70s. We could do that. That would be fantastic. That'd be the highest quality that we've ever done. Just joking. <laughs> All right. So before we dive into our topic today, I want to start a new segment of the show, Rich. Um, and who knows if this is going to stick, but I've tentatively titled this segment, What Are We Wearing? Yeah, that's kind of dirty. I don't, neither of us are models, that is for sure. No, we, well, no, we're models for your average beer league. That, right, exactly. Now, Rich and I both have a plethora of sports jerseys, shirts, hats, and whatever. Uh, and we don't always get a chance to show them off. So each episode, we've decided to uh, wear 
wear one and kind of share with you, the listeners, a little bit of the, the crazy things that we have. Uh, if you want to join with us in that, you can hop over to our Twitter feed at Athletic Obscura. We'll put up a picture of Rich and I and what we're wearing every single episode. And we would love for you guys to post the pictures of what you're wearing. Show us uh, now PG, please. please PG pictures. This, yeah. It's a family show. Uh, but uh, show, show us your jerseys, hats, uh, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. So, Rich, what are you wearing today? Why would you choose it? I am wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers throwback Terry Bradshaw jersey. You sure are. And the reason that I had this, this is weird. I did not even buy this. This goes back to, I think, the first episode that we talked to, uh, we talked about uh, on Athletic Obscura about how we grew up as fans, and I mentioned how my mom was from Western Pennsylvania, right, and therefore a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Yep. So I remember I was at a store like at J.C. Penney's with her, and they right around the time when all these throwback vintage jerseys started popping up, and they actually had this Terry Bradshaw jersey, and of course my mom's a huge Terry Bradshaw fan. I think that. Her, him, and Lynn Swan were her favorite uh, players mm-hmm. of that era, and so uh, she's just like, "You need to have this," and bought this jersey for me, and so I had it, and I actually freaked my daughter out with it. How did you do that? So there's a plot point of uh, this is us, and yeah, spoiler, but you know the uh, the episode where you find out where the one guy dies, uh, how the guy dies. Uh, or no, it was the week before, whatever it was. You knew that he died because it was a crop pot that blew up or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they were from, like, Pittsburgh or whatever. They were big Steelers fans. So I show up at the Super Bowl party wearing this jersey, and my daughter, like, totally starts freaking out. I was like, why are you wearing this jersey? He died. <laughs> Crockpot. It's like, okay, wow. That That's just, that's the thing now. That is so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. Well, I decided to wear um, one of my BC Lions jerseys. And, of course, I have more than one BC Lions jersey. Yep. Because I am a big fan of the Canadian Football League. This one is a number 56 for Solomon Alamimian. And he was a linebacker uh, for the Lions for a number of years. And actually, Richard, it's actually autographed. And how did you get that autograph? Well, I was in um, Vancouver for a game <laughs> like you do and um, was happy uh, to go and uh, see the game with one of my good friends. And we ended up uh, at a bar after the game. So they had said um, a couple of the players are going to be at this bar after the game. And they had had walked in. And, of course, I'm a big Lions fan. And yeah. so I knew those guys as they kind of walked in. And I told my server, we told the server, I go, hey, are those some of the Lions? They go, yeah, why don't you go up and talk to them? And I was like fangirling out. I'm like, you know, 50 years old, fangirling out, not wanting to come over. But eventually got up my courage and I kind of walked over and I was in this night, this 56 jersey. And one of the players who came in was Solomon Alamimian and ended up being a super cool guy. Ended up talking with him for a little while. Mm -hmm. He's from Southern California and he couldn't wrap his head around why somebody would travel all the way to Vancouver to watch a Canadian football league game. But he was very grateful for it. And then um, he ended up signing the back of my jersey and it was just really great. It was was pretty awesome. So I have uh, my other uh, BC Lions jersey is also a signed jersey, but I won't won't tell you about that. Right. Well, it makes sense you would go to Vancouver. I mean, even if you weren't a BC Lions fan, Vancouver's a beautiful city. Love that city. If you were to go to like you know 
Winnipeg or Regina, Saskatchewan, then hardcore they would be really looking at you like why right right. all right well that was a fun little thing next episode we'll uh we'll dive into that again but let's get into the topic for today the topic for today has been brewing for months richard right yes it has you know in fact it's one of the first things that listeners of the show have been saying to me over the last couple of months when are you going to do that episode on the globe trotters we teased it yeah and then we didn't do it and then we went on the road we scattered like ants yeah, yeah well, no the ants don't scatter do they, they cockroaches all, cockroaches yeah yep. but we're not that but the wait is over my friends the time is now richard and i have some amazing things to share with you today uh, and in fact the story is so so broad we're going to divide it up into two parts and we're going to tell you that up front we're going to do uh, a couple of the amazing stories of the globe trotters uh in this episode and then in the, and then in the next episode oh, boy we got some great ones for that next one yeah well. and the reason that we broke that up is because the globe trotters have such a huge rich history that goes back a century right yeah. uh, you know now essentially and there is a distinct break as we've done the research there really is a distinctive break within the globe trotters legacy yep and it was only fair to be able to like just split that legacy and cover both of those halves in one separate episode and and then to kind of let the story breathe a little bit too because there's so much here yeah uh rich what are your kind of your earliest memories of the globe trotters uh watching them on wide world of sports yep back in yep. the late 70s early 80s as a kid and uh this was uh some of the most famous players uh i was not old enough to uh remember uh metal arc lemon in his heyday right but i remember uh you know curly neal and geese osby yep. which were two of the most famous um globetrotters of all time i think really absolutely same i think it's that that sunday afternoon on abc um my dad played uh basketball in high school and college and he knew the globetrotters were going to be on tv and he wanted to make for sure that i watched it uh really kind of instilled in me kind of a love for basketball as well which has sort of faded over the years but this is not the time necessarily for that right uh but uh, I also remember the cartoon. You remember the Globetrotters cartoon? Yeah. Just fascinating. And, and I, 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 in my brain, I had just, they were on like a, an episode of Scooby-Doo. But what I realized is they had their own series. It went over two seasons. I think there's 22 episodes. Um, just some fascinating things. And in my mind, I had morphed those together because they were on uh, a Scooby-Doo movie it was Scooby Doo yep. and the Globetrotters. Yep, and it, it was it was pretty fascinating as well. Um, you remember those cartoons, Rich? I'll see your uh, Scooby Doo reference. I'll raise you the episode of the TV movie they did where they were on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> oh, that's right. I almost With forgot Chick about Hearn that. Chick Hearn doing the play by play, by the way. No, Chick Hearn didn't Chick do that. Chick Hearn did, he? did the play by play. Well, that is that's got to be in the next episode. Yeah. All right, and you know, just getting back to that, uh, just. I, you know, there's a couple of things. You, you mentioned Wild World Sports and stuff like that. And one of my childhood memories is, you know, my birthday is February 17th. So around yep. President's Day weekend. So growing up, there were always two things basketball related that I always knew would would happen. A, the uh, Globetrotters would be playing locally because for whatever reason, the days around President's Day, around the 17th, were when they was the... Uh, uh, stop on their tour in Southern California. Okay. And then back in the 80s, at the height of the Lakers-Celtics rivalry, 
CBS would always show the Lakers and the Celtics playing at the Forum because the NBA always did this uh, East Coast swing for Boston, and they always went up in Southern California. I don't know if it was like, you know, what the Chicago teams in the circus and around Thanksgiving, but they were always in Southern California around President's Day weekend. And so that game, so I always built my uh, that weekend around watching that Lakers-Celtics game. Perfect, yeah. I I was fortunate enough to see the Globetrotters live back in like 1996, I think is when it was. That's that's crazy. I, I, I know you've mentioned that once or twice, but you really haven't given too much detail. Well, I was teaching at the time. It was actually my very first year of teaching, and one of my students um, had uh, tickets with her family, and um, – didn't really have anybody to kind of go with. And I, I became uh, chums, friends, chums. What, that's a weird word. Chums? I became, became a chum. Became a, a friend. Chum, yes. Be. That's okay. Last, earlier this week, I actually used the term fuddy-duddy in front of my kids. And they, yeah, they looked at me. They, cro- they called you a fuddy-duddy. Well, I, yeah. I, I became friends with uh, with the parents of this particular student, and they ended up inviting me to go with them. It was down in Anaheim uh, at the, it was the pond at that point. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I was not really thinking anything of it. We got seats to go see it. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, we're going in through like the VIP entrance. And then we we're waiting around. And then we had like a meet and greet with the players. And so I got to meet a bunch of the players. And then we were shown to our seats, which were... Courtside, nice. And the 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 whole uh, bucket of water shtick happened like about three people down from me. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> did he get any residual splash of the confetti? No, did not. But uh, but it it was one of those things. I've seen this on TV so many times. Yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about, you can look up. Uh, you know some of the confetti uh, shtick. But it was it was a great. It was a wonderful um, evening. It, we had a great time. Uh, I, I loved it. All right. Let's get into the meat of the show. You ready, Richard? Yeah, let's dig it. Okay. Uh, we're going to go back to late 19th century Chicago. Now, if you were with us um, in the pedestrianism episode, uh, you kind of know a little bit about what Chicago was like at this, at this particular time. Uh, you would think we would be going to Harlem because this is the Harlem Globetrotters. Right. No, no, no. We begin in Chicago. And Chicago in the late 19th century is booming, all right? Yep. It is booming, but it is dirty. It is dangerous, um, not to mention extremely segregated. Now, we think segregated between, like, white, black. I'm not talking about that necessarily. We're talking about there is the Irish part of town. There is the German part of town. Mm -hmm. There is the Jewish part of town. There is all these particular enclaves. Um, But... uh, the first character we want to get into is Abraham Saperstein. You probably heard of him as Abe Saperstein, kind of the founder of the of the Globetrotters. You've heard the name, right? Rich? Oh, of course, yes. yes. Born in London, 1902, to Lewis and Anna, his parents, and they immigrated from Poland. So they came from Poland, they went to London, and then they landed in Chicago. Now, See, that's the thing. I never realized that he was British. Yep. I, I never realized he was born in the UK. I always just assumed that he was born here. Yep. Nope. Uh, he loved sports. Abe did, but he was diminutive, you might okay. say. Uh, 110 pounds soaking wet while the time wow. when he was in high school. He was super popular, had an amazing charisma. Uh, he loved baseball. Baseball was his first love, but he couldn't hit a lick. 
Hmm. Right. So he started focusing on basketball. He was a decent enough athlete. Um, but but remember, basketball in in the early 20th century, completely different sport. He than was getting it on the ground floor. Without a doubt. You know, because, again, I, I remember and I know we referenced this uh, a couple episodes back. The uh, musical Meet Me in St. Louis is taught about the 1904 fair. And there's this, a plot line about the guy wanting to go play basketball. And then you think it's like. Yeah, he's playing this new, weird, funky sport. Yeah, 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 with Meet Me in St. Louis, for sure. Yeah. And we're only a couple of decades or a decade and a half after that. Yeah. Um, he he would, now basketball in the time, low scores, no shot clock, no rules against goaltending, there's no backcourt, there's no three seconds. Um there It's a pretty physical game at that particular time. And then every time you'd make a basket, you would mm-hmm. jump ball at center again. Okay, so, so like pretty much like a face-off in hockey. Correct, correct, correct. Um, and um, a little bit later now, so earliest 20th century, there became what was known as the Great Migration. Um, hundreds and thousands of African Americans from the South started moving to the North again. Yep. Um, especially coming to the big cities, one of them being Chicago, and predominantly in the south side of Chicago. Again, yep. the segregation lines in Chicago were, were very, very strict. In fact, there was some redlining that happened. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting is the Sapersteins, although they were Jewish, lived in the German part of town because they were kind of, um, uh, it was easier for them to be German, quote unquote, than to be Jewish. Okay. And um, Abe's dad was a tailor. And opened a tailor shop and actually had it, uh, we're, we're going by different names uh, to fit into the German community, which okay. is kind of a different whole story. Yeah. But the, the, the south side of Chicago was what many had referred to in the press as a festering slum. Um, it wasn't really great. Even some of the people who were living there tried to move out, but the, the, they were, the, the neighborhoods were redlined, meaning that this was a whites-only neighborhood yeah and they couldn't get out of it if they tried um they would be forcibly removed their house might even be burned down this this tremendous amount of racism which we'll get into it which is kind of an undercurrent of this entire story right now in 1909 there was the establishment of the men's basketball league on the south side and a couple years after that they had church leagues that followed and by 1914 the south side boys club at wabash avenue ymca were sponsoring teams that played white teams all over Chicago. So there were these teams from the South side, all black who were ending up playing white teams from mostly the North side and other parts of Chicago. Now there was lots of racial tensions. um, And by the mid 1920s, the kind of the, the color lines were pretty rigid in Chicago. Was the Chicago river like part of that redlining just because you mentioned Wabash Avenue. And I know that's like one of the major, uh, streets that go that goes over the chicago river into downtown not sure about that it could be okay i don't i don't really know one of the things that the community uh especially in the south of uh, south side of chicago which was actually known as bronzeville and it was kind of second only to harlem as far as uh the centers of of, uh african-american black culture 
okay. in that particular time. Um, one of the things that kind of galvanized the community was sports. And sports became major social events, big crowds. Um, they had special trains that would go uh, to places to, to make sure that people got to where they needed to, to go to. And it became a, a real um, uh, cultural gem uh, for the community. Yeah, well, they also had like, yeah, also had stuff like the uh, Sportsman's Club, which was the all male, uh, where like all these uh, rich people would gather and they had parlor games and they had all this stuff so that really kind of like bridged that gap between uh the social element of athletics right uh in there now let's fast forward to 1927 all right yep. you're ringing a bell to you oh absolutely a lot of things happened in 1927 let's just talk uh, about them they say that 1927 was possibly the greatest year in american sports history all right. Babe Ruth hits 60 home runs. The Murders Yan- row. Mur- yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The Yankees win the AL by 19 games. They sweep the Pirates in the World Series. Ty Cobb becomes the first player to reach 4,000 hits in 1927. That's the same year as the infamous long count in the heavyweight rematch between Dempsey and Tunney. Yep. Um, Red Grange is running wild in the early years of professional football. Big Bill Tinden is the master of is tennis. Is it Tilden? Tilden, I put Tilden yeah. on there. Tilden, you are correct. I wrote that down wrong. Sir Walter Hagen uh, wins his fourth straight PGA Championship in 1927. Bobby Jones won his second British Open and his third U.S. Amateur title. Um, and one of the reasons that people kind of think about this is the the, the proliferation of radio uh, about this time. And Sports really blew up on radio, and in 1927, radio really turned a lot of local sports heroes into national idols. Yeah, and getting back really quick to the 27 World Series, a little side note on that, uh, with the Pirates, um, the, one of the main reasons they got swept, well, other than the Yankees being murderers row, was uh, their star player, Kiki Kyler, uh, was benched because the manager wanted to bat him second and Kyler said no that's bad luck I don't want a bat second so we got benched fascinating yeah fascinating all right 1927 some other big things happened first transatlantic phone call first demonstration of television the first talking picture jazz singer with Al Jolson uh, and perhaps the greatest event of the year and perhaps of the decade is Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis yep um there's a couple of, of books out there uh, that talk about uh, 1927 that are amazing. I'll, I'll throw a couple in the links there. Well, this is the Roaring Twenties, yep. right? And the Roaring Twenties are, well, roaring, right? And this is also the height of prohibition. Correct. And if you know anything about Chicago in the 20s uh, and the Roaring Twenties, um, yeah, they kind of are heavily involved in the whole prohibition uh, bootlegging kind of thing. Absolutely. Stock market crash is a couple years away here. Al Capone is at the height of his powers. Speaking of bootlegging. Absolutely. Uh, Abe Saperstein at this particular time is 25, living at home with his parents on the north side of Chicago. What a slacker. He dropped out of the University of Illinois because he didn't make the basketball team, and he came home to be a playground supervisor. And he did that for the park system in Chicago, and he was working on the south side of Chicago. And he met uh, some amazingly talented uh, black athletes who also had a love for basketball. And, and Abe really wanted to kind of form the best team of the, in the city. All right. And so he was able to, to connect with a lot of people there. Um, now, the other thing that was happening on the south side in black communities is that dancing was extremely popular. 
And there was a, a, a dance hall called the Savoy Ballroom. And the owners decided that hosting basketball games would be a good way to get people into the building. And then hopefully they would stay and dance the night away. Yeah, isn't this the time where they would have like these insane like dance marathon competitions? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And because of this, this led to the formation of one of the big uh, one of the first big uh, uh, basketball teams called the Savoy Big Five, um, a semi-professional team in Chicago. Uh, but the story is a little muddy here. Um, Abe Saperstein was always one to embellish a story um, and says uh, the story kind of goes, well, what did they say? Uh, Saperstein never let facts get in the way of a good story. Okay. That's kind of what he was like. And, what happened is that at the Savoy Ballroom, they replaced basketball with roller skating. Oh, geez, of course they did. We've already gone through this. <laughs> we have. If you've, if you've listened to a couple of our episodes, you know roller skating comes back a couple of different times. So as Abe Saperstein tells the story, the Savoy Big Five had no place to play, so they folded. And then Abe took some of the Savoy Five players and a couple others. He wanted to have them keep playing. And so he went home and he asked his dad, who was the tailor, to craft some uniforms and he put the words uh, New York on them in hopes to, okay. to generate some excitement in booking teams uh, from the Big Apple. Now, Abe Saperstein at this particular time was uh, was pretty accomplished at booking uh, athletic events. Okay. He was working for a number of Negro League teams to be able to book them across the Midwest to play, barnstorming. Barnstorming, yeah. And it was much easier for a white man to book those for the Negro League teams at that particular time. Okay. So he, he had done this before. So he is now wants to do this with basketball. So... As Abe Saperstein tells the story is that he takes his New York team and they hit the road to Barnstorm and they go to Hinkley, Illinois to play their first game January 7th, 1927. All right. Except none of that is true. <laughs> That's just... So A Abe Saperstein began telling that story about mid-1940s about it all right so doing a little bit of research um not my research other people's research and reading it in books there's some there's some problems with the quote-unquote official story from abe saperstein about starting in january 1927 all right with a you know the the savoy big five uh -huh. and and basketball and that whole thing now first of all the savoy ballroom didn't even exist january 1927 it opens in the fall of 1927. Whoops. Uh, there's no evidence that Abe ever coached the Savoy Five. Um, and in fact, the Savoy Five ended up playing for many, many, many years after uh, they ended basketball at the Savoy Ballroom. Huh. Now, it is true that they ended basketball at the Savoy Ballroom and right. replaced it with roller skating. That's true. Okay. All right. But one of the members of the Savoy Five claims that he started a new team that was called the Globetrotters. All right. Okay. Not necessarily the Harlem Globetrotters, but the Globetrotters. All right. And then Abe stole the team from him. Now, again, like I said before, Abe doesn't really tell the, the foundation story of the Globetrotters until about 20 years later. It was when they uh, the Globetrotters were playing in Hinkley, Illinois, on what he called the 20th anniversary of the founding of the Globetrotters in 1947, which appears to be a completely a marketing ploy. So he just kind of made it up on the spot. Made it up on the spot to get more butts in the seats. 
Wow. Right? And, of course, the people in Hinckley claimed there was not even a game in 1927 that the, that the Globetrotters or anybody went to. That's strange. I, I would imagine that he probably said, oh, yeah, Hinckley, Illinois. This is a small podunk town. And, yep. uh, you know, it's not like, you know, Naperville or whatever, like suburb of Chicago and a little further out. And so he probably thought he could get away with it. So, um, simply put, the Globetrotters didn't exist in 1927. It would be a great addition to the 1927 sports legends, but it just is not true. Um, now, there were two well-known barnstorming teams in the early 1920s, both of them known as the Globetrotters. Yeah. All right? One was from uh, Minnesota. One was from more of, uh, of the of the Chicago area. So the word Globetrotters was around for a while. Um, in in nineteen twenty eight, Abe um, basically I have to gloss over so many of the details, Richard, or we're never going to get through the story. Okay. He basically blackmails an American Legion team and takes over as their coach and booking agent. And then he has a fallout with one of the stars named Tommy Brookins. Um, and Tommy Brookins had named, uh, well, Tommy Brookins left and started his own touring team. And, of course, he called them the Chicago Globetrotters. Okay, so this really sounds just kind of dirty and kind of just backstabby and just kind of really not pleasant right and so this new version of the globetrotters begins becomes pretty successful abe sees their success kind of tries to to reconcile with tommy brookins a little bit uh, and begins booking for tommy brookins globetrotters uh, and he gets so much interest in booking the globetrotters that abe unbeknownst to brookings forms a second team he recruits some of the Savoy Big Five to be on his second unit, and now he's booking two teams called the Globetrotters. One is Tommy Brookings' team, and the other is Abe Saperstein's team. All right? Okay. Tommy Brookings, kind of, his team ends up folding, so now there's only one Globetrotters team. That's Abe's team. And, ironically, their first documented game does take place in Hinkley, Illinois, but on January 21st, 1929, and they lose 43 to 34. Wow. So, again, I am really glossing over some of the details here, but basically Hinkley, uh, I mean, uh, Saperstein basically steals the name and kind of the moniker of Globetrotters from Tommy Brookings, mm -hmm. uh, who stole the name Globetrotters from two other traveling teams and now Abe Saperstein's Globetrotters are the ones who are touring. But he does um, go on the road with the early Globetrotters. And life was not glamorous for them. Um, the whole team, that's Abe and five players, were in a Model T. And they traveled from town to town. They did it during the winter, and the car had no heat. Ooh. And most of the time, they had to sleep in the car as well. They were paid $25 usually for the uh, a game, and Abe would split it seven ways, and each player got one share, and Abe got two shares. And they played every day and twice on Sundays to make, the, uh, to make ends meet. And they would play anybody. They'd play, you get five lumberjacks from British Columbia together, and they would they would play them. And by 1934, they had won over a thousand games. Again, okay. I, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of this. This is not the Globetrotters that you think of right now. This is 
Um, this is straight up basketball. Yeah. Now, a different style of basketball. It's almost like a paid pickup game. Right. Exactly. This is this is a, a very different style. This is not two-handed set shots, but this is more jump shots, hooks, fast breaks, and dunks. They 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 were dunking back then. All okay. Right? It wasn't like a slam dunk, you know, Shaquille O'Neal style or anything like that. Now there is there is one one later biographer said the difference between white basketball and black basketball in the first half of the twentieth century is the difference between classical music and jazz. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, one is one is uh, very rigid, follows certain rules, and the other is very free. Free-flowing, free, yeah. yeah. And, and in, in some ways, the, the Globetrotters barnstorming in the early years gave Americans their first taste of black culture. Um, and it, the free structure led to the emergence of the Globetrotter style of play and informed what will be termed the magic circle uh, at some point. It, it's, it's great that you mentioned that with Chaz because... Uh, historical context we're in the 1920s still and the 30s you know we're just coming out of the jazz age where you have your first generation of like you know well-known jazz musicians and so the correlation there is just absolutely perfect yep 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 now on the road the globetrotters face racism every single day they struggled to find places to eat mm-hmm. places to sleep everywhere they toured they faced lots of jim crow laws uh, in one nebraska town there were no uh, quote-unquote colored hotels so they ended up having to sleep at the county jail that's um, horrible 1939 four of the players asked abe for uh, a say in how the team was run and for equal pay and what did abe do he cut them and he, wow. got, and he got four new players so abe abe saperstein is not a nice guy um and it's or at least this is the impression. He's not as nice as maybe maybe you, you think he is, but he's not as awful as some of the other characters that we have seen in here. I wouldn't call right. him necessarily racist, but I would say that he used the the culture to his advantage. Very ruthless. Ruthless. That's a yeah. good way to put it. Yeah. Now, the Trotters really dominated the um, opponents. And one of the things they did is instead of running up the score, they started to have fun. And this is where the, the, the origins of the Globetrotters game begins. They started uh, uh, putting on some dribbling exi- exhibitions. They would pass and pass and pass with no shot clock. They could just hold yeah. hold it. And um, since there's no shot clock, the stall or the freeze was kind of a part of the game. Uh, and the Trotters loved it. They had fun with it. They developed, they developed some regular routines, um, spinning the ball on a finger, no-look passes. And the crowd ate it up. Yeah, the crowd loved it, and the more they clowned, the more they were accepted by the white audiences. And the predominantly white crowd didn't really like uh, seeing their team just get you know throttled every single time. But they loved the antics of the Globetrotters. So what it did is it got them even more bookings into more white towns. And if the Trotters could amuse people, kind of got their foot in the door. Now they still had to put the ball in in the basket, yeah. so they still had to 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 make make hoops um so they had to shoot they had to pass they had to dribble they had to play at a high level and from the ninth by the 1940s they moved from playing like in gyms to playing more arenas they're playing in much bigger places in the early 1940s their popularity began to skyrocket skyrocket because of uh one particular player reese goose tatum yep probably heard that name before uh became the first clown prince of basketball uh, the first in many lines, you mentioned Meadowlark Lemon, 
Uh, he saws me. He saws me. Mm-hmm. There's always kind of that one kind of uh, uh, character on the Globetrotters team. The first one is going to be Goose. Yeah. Um, he started his athletic career playing first base for the Indianapolis Clowns. All right. Um, uh, Negro League team. They were the Savannah Bananas of the day. You know the Savannah Bananas? Savannah Bananas. Yeah, yeah. they're hilarious. Yeah. So they would do all sorts of kind of fun things on the baseball field as well. Um, and uh, – it's really Goose who brings the magic circle into prominence, uh, and he based it on the game of Pepper, uh, uh, baseball game of Pepper. Right. And by the nineteen, by the late well, nineteen, 19- why don't you explain what Pepper is? Just because you know you see signs in the no old pepper. city of no Pepper games. Uh, you'd have one person uh, with a bat. You'd have like three or four or five people kind of in a line across that, and it was a fast-paced uh, game where the the players would would flip the ball to the batter, and the batter would hit it, and so it would be working on eye, eye, hand-eye coordination, be warming up your your uh, your hands, your muscles, your legs. It was kind of a warm-up exercise for baseball. Right. And okay. so, so the magic circle is, you know, standing around in a circle and kind of doing all those globetrottery things as passing the ball and doing all, yep. all that kind of stuff. And uh, about this particular time, they put the routine to music, which is where we get... Sweet Georgia Brown. Brown. Absolutely. Now, 1946, Marcus Haynes, which is another name you, you maybe know, yep. is added to the team, uh, becomes the ball handler extraordinaire. Yeah. Um, and he uh, honed his skills. And what he did is he took tennis balls and he would walk the railroad tracks when he was a kid and he would bounce the tennis ball on the railroad track. And he got so good at bouncing the tennis ball on the railroad track, it be it parlayed into him having amazing hand-eye coordination. Um, when he was in high school and college, he never really was able to kind of show his uh, handling skills. Um, he played for some uh, strict uh, fundamentalist coaches. Okay, um, he did. Uh, break it out uh, with the Trotters, and it became just an institution. And every time you see a Globe Trotters game, you see the one person just dribbles like crazy. This all goes back to Marcus Haynes. Yeah. Um, December 1946. Now, Life Magazine does a cover story on the Globe Trotters. It makes them even more popular. Um, and, and and but at this particular time, they're just about at the cusp of being not only nationally. Um, well-known, but internationally well-known. And some amazing, important events are just about to come up uh, uh, that uh, we're going to get to those after the break. Yes. Should we, should we do a break, Richard? I think we should do a break. Let's yes. do a break. Um, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, some pretty, I'm going to say, jaw-dropping things that happen in uh, the history of the Globetrotters. We'll be back in just a second. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Hey man, who's that cat coming down the street? I don't know, but it sounds to me like that whipping man with the bone. Sure has himself a ball. And that is the amazing sweet Georgia Brown music. Richard, what do you think? Oh, it's great, and you really shouldn't have tried to throw a water bottle at me after doing the tricks. It's terrible. <laughs> it was a disaster. It was a no-look pass. What, are, what am I going to say? Uh, say heads up maybe the next time. You know, <laughs> I hope uh, I don't have a black eye out of this. Um, this has become um, music that you think of anytime there's, like, crazy things that happen in sports, right? In any sport. I mean, yeah. we were just talking about it during the break. It's like, you know, you get a team in hockey on a power play, and they're, like, essentially just passing the uh, puck around, uh, just making the guys look like a pylon. You just think, you know, my gosh, this is like they might as well just play Sweet Georgia Brown over the uh, over the head, you right, know? Right, right, Yeah. Good, good, good stuff. It always reminds me of a uh, of fun, uh, fun times watching um, the Globetrotters. That's for sure. Uh, we are uh, like late nineteen forties in our story yeah. right now. There is still a, a pretty stark contrast um, in, along racial lines in basketball between white teams and black teams, and we're still pre NBA here. Yes. All right. Um, and so, Rich, kind of walk us through a little bit about the, the formation of professional basketball. To be honest with you, um, this really deserves its own episode. So just give us kind of the highlights. Yeah, we will be giving a full episode uh, to the formation of the NBA because it is a phenomenal, fascinating story. Um, now, we're the timeline is 1946, so the NBA does not come around until August 3rd, 1949. And the NBA forms with the merger of two separate basketball leagues. Now, this isn't a situation where one league absorbed into a rival league, like the NFL merging with the AFL, but keeping the NFL name. Right. Right? So this was a situation where the larger Basketball Association of America, or the BAA, and the smaller National Basketball League, the NBL, merged to form a completely new league that didn't previously exist. Okay. The National Basketball Association, the NBA. Now, the two leagues that would form the NBA were unusual because it almost seems like the timeline of existence was backwards compared to what we know of other leagues. Okay. So the NBL formed in 1937, and the BAA, formed, which is the bigger league, uh, formed in 1946. So that's a nine-year gap. So they form right when we're talking about the Globetrotters right now. So normally in this situation, you would see a big sports league that launches in the bigger cities and the upstart league filling in the gaps with the smaller cities, um, but not not here. Yeah, that would make sense. Right. So, like, you know, you look at the, uh, the NFL was established in places like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Detroit where uh, the AFL came along and said, oh, let's go ahead and put a team in. Houston in Dallas and later Kansas City or Denver, you know, these places. So the NBL, which was first, they primarily existed in small Midwestern cities. Now, they did have some big cities represented like Chicago, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Detroit. Um, Most of the but most of those teams that bounced in and out of the league were from cities like Sheboygan, Wisconsin, or Dayton, Ohio, or Rochester, New York, or Anderson, Indiana. I don't even know where Anderson, Indiana is. I don't either. But they had a team. However, if you sift through the long list of teams that played in the NBL at one time or another, and there is quite a bit of teams, 
um, you'll start seeing some familiar names show up, like the Minneapolis Lakers. Okay. The Fort Wayne Pistons, which became uh, the Detroit right. Pistons. And the Syracuse Nationals, which would eventually move to Philadelphia and become the 76ers. Right, right. Uh, side note, uh, in 1937, there was a small team in the NBA called the Warren Pens, and they played one season in Warren, Pennsylvania, a small industrial town of roughly 15,000 folks. Now, that is a super small town because that's the town where my mom uh, grew up in, uh-huh. and she will tell you that it was a small podunk town, and when the, she moved uh, out of that, it was kind of overwhelming for her. Um, and... Another side note, this will be for another episode. I'll have to tell you about the time that uh, one of my mom's uh, cousins or something uh, or uncles arranged for Ralph Kiner to show up at their place uh, <laughs> during the off season. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. So anyway, another side note, this league was essentially founded by corporations. Oh, okay. So places like GE, Firestone, Goodyear, all those were responsible for these for these uh this league so you had weird team names like the akron firestone non-skids or the toledo jim white chevrolets uh so yeah that's what we need to do an episode because this is almost like rollerball territory where the corporations are running the league that's crazy that's it's crazy nuts. all right so the baa on the other hand immediately established itself as the bigger fish in with established teams in big cities like new york Boston, Toronto, Philadelphia. The reason for this in a roundabout way, hockey. Of course. So dig this. So the league essentially was created to boost arena ticket revenues in venues that hosted pro hockey games but sat empty during other nights. So Boston had the Bruins. New York had the Rangers. Toronto had the Maple Leafs. So that was just a money-making scheme for the arenas and such. To earn more money. So the arena's sitting empty, so might as well fill it with something. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, again, you'll see some familiar names pop up here, like the Boston Celtics, yep. the New York Knicks, and the Philadelphia, now which is now the Golden State Warriors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by 1948, the BAA starts attracting the country's best players, and the NBL, some of the NBL franchises take notice. So they actually start uh, attracting the teams that jump ship from the NBL to the BAA. So these are teams like the Lakers, the Pistons, and the Rochester Royals, who are now the Sacramento Kings. Right, right, okay. And they jump to the new league. Seeing the writing on the wall, the NBA, the NBL merged with the BAA, and the NBA was born. A mix of 17 teams from large and small markets. Fascinating, fascinating. Right? So there were one thing that both leagues had in common, though, and this gets back to your racial... Uh, they were all white leagues. Mm, mm. And things remained this way for the NBA's first two years. This changed at the start of the 1950-51 season when three black men made their, made their NBA debut. Two of them were drafted. Chuck Cooper III were, was the first black player to be drafted as the Boston Celtics drafted him with a 13th overall pick, which at the time was the, second, uh, was the uh, first pick in the second round. Uh, the second player picked, Earl Lloyd, was selected by the Washington Capitals. Not the hockey team, of course. <laughs> of it's a different spelling and all that. We, we, we've gone through that before. That's yeah. back in the very first episode. And uh, he was selected at uh, pick number 100. Okay. The third guy on the list, and I think probably the most famous of 
these guys is a guy by the name of Nate's of uh, Nat Sweetwater Sweetwater Clifton. Absolutely, yep. Who is generally thought of to be the first black man to sign an NBA contract when he signed with the Knicks. However, his case was interesting because his signage was more of a selling of an existing contract to the Knicks from his old team, which was the Harlem Globetrotters. Of course it was. Cooper and Lloyd were also former Globetrotters. Yep. And the reason and there was a reason for this, according to Cooper. He was quoted as saying, if you were black and wanted to make a decent amount of money playing basketball, there were only 12 slots, and that was with the Globetrotters. Abe Safferstein had a monopoly on black players. Yep, yep. So there's a catch to this color barrier breakage, though. While these guys made it into the NBA, there was an unwritten rule that said, yeah, you can rebound, you can pla- pass and play defense, but leave the scoring to the white guys. Mm. So the the reason was that the league was allegedly wary that a black player may emerge as a superstar, and they weren't ready for that. And so you look at the box score, you know, the scores is like, I think one year Clifton wound up uh, breaking through and averaging almost 20 points in the playoffs. Mm. And that was like a reveal. But other than that, they were very much a rebound and defense guy. This attitude changed in the mid to late 50s just because of the uncontrollable superstar talents of players like Maurice Stokes yep. and Elgin Baylor. Yep. And finally, Will Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain shows up after a stint with the Globetrotters, mm-hmm. and his talent is just so overwhelming that the, the dam broke. Yeah, boy, that that is just the tip of the iceberg with uh, the formation of the NBA and kind of that 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 stuff. We're we're going to get a little bit into how the Globetrotters uh, fit into this. You heard a little bit about what what uh, you were, I heard a little bit about what you're saying there, Richard, about these being former Globetrotter players, and that's really the case. The only avenue. Uh, in in the 40s and 50s was the Globetrotters. Before that, there were some other big black teams. There was the New York Wrens. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a, a couple of other ones in Chicago. But other than that, it was the Globetrotters. Um, but really what this does is this sets the stage for a showdown between the Globetrotters and, and kind of black basketball and yep. the, the, the established professional or, or white basketball. And this really comes to a head when the Globetrotters challenge the mighty Minneapolis Lakers. To a series of games. Yeah. The first meeting is February the 19th, 1948, and they play the game at Chicago Stadium. Yeah. All right. Uh, the, what, what do you call it? The the Madhouse on Madison? Madhouse on Madison. Yeah. Uh, legendary barn. You had the Blackhawks playing there since 1926. And weren't the dressing rooms downstairs? Yes. And the visitor dressing room was... Uh, situated where the visiting team had to climb up this nasty flight of stairs. Yeah, not not good. Not yeah. good at all. Now, the Lakers, you might have heard, uh, uh, were led by um, dominant center George Mikan. Yeah. All right. We and- need to just mention a little bit about George Mikan for those who don't know. Um, he was so dominant that they changed the, the NBA changed the rules because they actually widened the the uh, paint area. Yeah, the key. They, they widened the key because he was so dominant. And you know, I think one of the best quotes about him was uh, Shaquille O'Neal said, "Without George Mikan, there's no me." Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Um, he he was dominant on both ends of the court. He was a local kid from Joliet, Illinois. He went to school at DePaul, mm-hmm. and then the Lakers also had another uh, superstar, Jim the Kangaroo Kid Pollard. Yeah, and the reason they called him the Kangaroo Kid is he could jump out of the gym. 
He had hurt his elbow one time hitting it on the backboard. Yeah. So he he was an amazing player as well. This is basically the best white team in the country versus the best black team in the country. And in some ways, this is really Goose versus Mikan. Now, remember, this is before kind of the, the showmanship of the Globetrotters was the main thing. The main thing here is is basketball. And in this first game, this is a this is a straight up basketball game. Now it's two completely different styles of basketball, um, like we kind of talked about in the first half. But the Lakers really dominated the first half of this particular game, um, and. Th- at halftime, Abe Saperstein uh, kind of changed the, the philosophy, and basically what they decided to do was to try to outrun the Lakers, which, of course, sounds weird to me because the Lakers are known as being that, you know, showtime, showtime and running yeah. up and down. At this time, it, it was not. So they decide they're just going to run them and run them and run them, and then whenever Mike gets the ball, they're just going to hack them. The hack attack. Yeah, the hack attack. Hack shack, you know. Even, even before Shaq was doing this, was the hack attack. And so they were going to space out their fouls, and they were going to just hack him. Because there's no one-and-one one here. If they if it wasn't a shooting foul, he would just get one shot. Yeah. And Mikan ends up going pretty cold in this game. The Lakers uh, come back. It becomes, goes back and forth. Uh, it is a tie game with 30 seconds left. Now... It's sort of a mystery as to exactly what happened. You talk to like four or five different people and you get four or five different stories as to who was really involved in the last 30 seconds. But the Globetrotters have the ball. Um, they run a, a couple of, of, of picks um, and uh, they end up uh, having a last second shot that goes in. Literally, shot is released. The gun goes off because that's how the end of the game is at this particular time. A gun, not like a like a real bullet, like back in yeah, the day with like you a know, blank. Like, yeah, a blank was the end of it. And after the gun goes off, the 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 ball goes into the hoop, and so the the trotters win, and it, it's it's pandemonium. The the crowd is probably sixty forty. Um, white in the building, mm-hmm. but everybody thought it was an amazing game and, and we're just blown away. Um, it really opened doors around the country and the world for the Globetrotters that they beat the best white team in the country. And the Lakers, of course, wanted a rematch, and that came one year later. And in fact, the, the Globetrotters and the Lakers would play a total of eight times. Now, the hype for the second game w- was even greater than the hype for the first game. The hype for the first game was huge. There was one of the largest crowds ever at Chicago Stadium to watch the second game. And what happened is that the Trotters basically dominated the game. And by the fourth quarter, they were putting on a show. Okay. So they're doing the dribbling. They're doing the no-look passes. They're doing this whole thing. Um, again, they were never about just completely rubbing it in somebody's face. Yeah. They ended up winning by by four, but it could have been a whole lot more. All right. Now, what makes this game even more important is that Movie Tone News was there. Okay. And Movie Tone News, if you don't remember, there was no CNN. There was no evening news. If you wanted to actually see the news in moving pictures. It was movie tone news or Paramount news. And then it would be you the, go to the movie theater. Gotta go to the movie theater. So the trailers on the movie theater or what we call trailers previews, it would run before the feature, but movie tone news comes and all of a sudden now the globe trotters are in every movie house in the country. 
and everybody begins to fall in love with the Globetrotters. Um, the second game did more for getting the Trotters into a popular conscience than anything else at that point, and they really become media stars. Um, and 1950 begins the, the first of many, many uh, nationwide tours. And what they decided to do is they're going to go cross country and they're going to play against a team of college all-stars and it was called the College World Series of Basketball and was way more popular than any of the professional basketball uh, uh, games, the NBA by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, they had all college uh, players who were all seniors, so they had no more amateur eligibility left, so they weren't messing with their eligibility here, but they right. weren't playing or drafted yet. And they played lots and lots of close games. The Trotters and the All-Stars traveled together on the same airplanes, stayed uh, when they could at the same hotels. Um, they, they, The players got very close to one another, and one writer said it was possibly the most integrated place in America in the 1950s. 1950s. That's awesome. Um, it was huge success, national press exposure. They went, they played like uh, um, basically 20 games in 20 days. You know, they just went from city to city to city to city. Um, and this yeah. went on for years. They did right. this for years. And in fact, there ended up being multiple kind of globetrotter teams that ended up going. You had like the regular traveling team. Then you had the team that went on the the uh, the College World Series, and some of the players would be mixed uh, in this. It kind of reminds me of uh, of monster trucks. Yeah, you know how. Um, uh, sorry to spoil this for anybody, but like, there's more than one grave digger. Yeah. You know, Gravedigger is at every single monster truck event because, anyways, that's another whole story. Uh, they end up taking the show on the road and they go to Europe for the first time. Now, they had been to Canada, they had been to Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, but this is their first time going across the pond. They go to Portugal and people love them. They just fall in love with them there. Uh, they end up and uh, playing uh, outside a lot because yeah. there weren't places. So they ended up bringing a floor with them and they would even play in the rain. There is uh, times where they are playing with uh, umbrellas uh-huh. on the court. Uh, people just love them. Then they went to Paris. People love them. They went to Geneva. Same thing. They go to London, and they have some racial issues in London. Oh. That they're not able to stay in some of the hotels, eat in some of the restaurants. It was kind of a a, a bump in the road for them. That's that's crazy to think about it because you don't really hear. I mean, in the U.S., you don't hear much about that. Yep. Then they head off to Belgium, and then they go back to France, uh, and they are just wildly popular. Now, what is interesting is the United States State Department starts taking notice, and they begin to kind of use the Globetrotters as to counter Soviet propaganda to say, look at how wonderful America is. We're very integrated. We don't have any racial problems or, or tensions. Look at all these things. Now, it wasn't necessarily true. No, but that's, but that's what, what they propaganda, That's right? what they start using. Mm-hmm. Now, they head to North Africa, then they go to Italy, and then they end up in West Germany. And they're gone for three months. They play 73 games. They lose one, but they play in front of 500,000 fans they visited 14 countries, played in nine, and truly became globetrotters. That's really cool. Now, uh, 1950, again, is when they played the Lakers the second time. And by this time, uh, the NBA has uh, officially formed. So they aren't playing the Minneapolis Lakers of the NBL or the BAA. They are playing the Minneapolis Lakers of the NBA. Absolutely. 
Now, this is also the year that uh, the Globetrotters go to one of our favorite destinations that we've talked about multiple times, Madison Square Garden. Yep. Which is the mecca of sports in this country. If you right. play there, you are going to, 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 you can play anywhere. Again, they're on Movie Tone News, Paramount News Reels. They began the college all-star series. They went to Europe. They had 1.5 million fans watch them in person in 1950. Um, then they get uh, basically a rags to riches movie deal from 20th Century Fox. So 20th Century Fox does this. It ends up being a, a fictitious story. Um, the main character is an actor, but all the other characters are globetrotters. Uh-huh. Um, they get somebody to play Abe Saperstein. It plays in theaters for over two years constantly. Oh, wow. Um, it's directed by Phil Brown. Um who ended up getting blacklisted from Hollywood in the hysteria of the McCarthy hearings. He ends up moving to London after the Globetrotters movie and getting blacklisted. And he goes on to have a small part in a little sci-fi film from 1977 where he plays the original Owen Lars in Star Wars. What? What? Right. Okay. No. What? Holy crap. <laughs> I knew this was going to shock you, and I didn't want to share this part with you until it actually came out. Holy crap, that's... The director of the Globetrotters movie is the original Owen Lars, Phil Brown. Crazy, right? (laughs) Man. Now, this movie that came out ends up being used as a propaganda film around the world. The U.S. State Department sends it all around the world, Um now, we, you talked a little bit about uh, the, the NBA finally drafting some black players. Mm-hmm. Um, and But uh, Saperstein was not happy with this because he was losing some of his players. Now, yeah. there is an argument that the NBA integrated so slowly because the owners feared the wrath of Abe Saperstein. Mm. And the Globetrotters ended up really kind of um, paying the bills for the NBA in many ways because the NBA teams would have the Globetrotters play an exhibition game and it would be a doubleheader with an NBA game because they were having a hard time drawing people into the building. Yeah, and also, again, going back to uh, Cooper's uh, quote about, like, there were 12 slots if you wanted to make money playing basketball and they were all for the Globetrotters. Yep, yep. So that mindset was still there. And what happens is they do these doubleheaders, and at first it was the Globetrotters playing a team and then stick around for the NBA game, hopefully, and they ended up kind of you know flipping things around so people would come for the NBA game and then the Globetrotters would be later, so right. they would get more people to watch the NBA games. Some say that the Globetrotters' um, connection to the NBA, early years of the NBA really keeps the NBA afloat until the Russell-led Celtic dynasties. All right. And um, without the, the, the Globetrotters connection, the NBA might have folded and we might not have the NBA. Right. A- as we know it. And we'll get into this in the second half of the uh, of this uh, story. But I really think that the, uh, the uh, Globetrotters really helped keep basketball more of top of mind with the general conscience more than the actual NBA did. Until we get to the 1980s. Exactly. Exactly. The, the Globetrotters keep breaking records for attendance everywhere that they go. Um, they, they go to Brazil and they play in Maracanã Stadium. And it's, they don't have an official number there, 
Um, some say it could be anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 who are there to watch them. Um, they Again, we talked about there's multiple units of, uh, of the Globetrotters. And one goes to Europe, one goes to South America. Uh, but the Globetrotters end up being more popular outside of the U.S. than in the U.S. here in the 1950s. Okay. Um, and they became really a calming effect when they arrived in, in a country. For example, they go to Paris, and at the time, Paris was having um, a, uh, a strike of the subway and bus uh, workers. All right. Um, but what happens is that all those tensions kind of went away, and they decided to open up the, the subways and the buses f- for the day to get the people to go see the Globetrotters game. There, this was happening in country after country that when they would show up, kind of the, the, the issues that were happening in that country would kind of calm down while they right. were there and everybody kind of rallied around them. Now, they, do you think that this is uh, also then responsible for the proliferation of basketball uh, coming up in uh, becoming a global sport because of the Globetrotters? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. This is the first time people, especially in Europe, uh, are seeing basketball there is netball what they called which was a girl sport um but but basketball is something new for a lot of them um their trips around the world became a magnet for american celebrities who are vacationing abroad and they end up having american celebrities at the games which would draw more people Mm -hmm. uh to those games um the the globetrotters performed the magic circle for pope Pius the 12th in 1951 now, there was no recorded music, so the team ended up humming and whistling Sweet Georgia Brown, <laughs> and they said the Pope loved it. Now, I want to get into probably the most memorable event in early Globetrotter history, and this is when they played in Berlin in 1951. Right. Now, Berlin is the center of Cold War hostilities. There's some racial and athletic strife there, obviously coming out of World War II, out of the Third Reich, out of Nazism. Mm-hmm. There was a riot in uh, Berlin after the Sugar Ray Robinson-Gerhard Hecht fight ended in controversy, and um, the the city basically went crazy, went into... Went into to, um, uh, make sure that Sugar Ray Robinson didn't get out of the city alive. Um, in the first week of August in 1951, there's a communist-sponsored Third World Festival of Youth and Students in East Germany. Boy, that and totally East sounds communist. Yep. They were expected about 2 million young people from about 50 countries into Berlin. And um, in that, there was going to be lots of negative U.S., West NATO sentiment, um, a lot, pro, gotcha. very pro-communist. Now, West Berlin was going to host a counter festival to attract youth who maybe came across the demarcation lines who were able to kind of go across right. and kind of talk about, um, you know, capitalism and the West. Uh, and the West Berlin authorities in the U.S. State Department requested that the Globetrotters come to Berlin. It was not on their itinerary to come at first. All right. Now, what is interesting is that the Globetrotters were traveling with Jesse Owens. Right? Okay. So Jesse Owens, the track star from, uh, you know, the 1936 Olympics, who was the, which was there in Berlin, he was coaching one of kind of the, the lower farm teams, if you will, that Saperstein had, which was called the, the All-Stars, which kind of stayed in the area. But they realized that he was a, um, an international 
uh, superstar. Okay. And so they brought him to Europe, and he would kind of be like the halftime entertainment. Oh, I, I completely forgot about this. In the 1940s, Abe Saperstein basically uh, uh, starts halftime entertainment. He oh. he would he would bring uh, bands. He would okay. bring in uh, like accordionists. He would bring in jugglers. Uh, you name it, he would bring them in because he wanted the people to stay through halftime as well. So he they wanted people to stay, but then he brought an accordionist. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Who who knows? Now, Jesse Owens is traveling with the Globetrotters, and the, the U.S. authorities believe that uh, between the Trotters and Jesse Owens, they could ease some of the tensions rising between East uh, and West. Okay. Uh, so Abe Saperstein was very apprehensive, but U.S. High Commissioner for Germany, John McCloy, argued persuasively, and he said, quote, this was the job for all free peoples and Americans particularly. So, all right. Lots of logistics to figure out uh, as a game in Berlin is not on the original schedule, like I said. They had to move their portable floor, and they needed to have both teams travel. And the, the, the opponents that were traveling with them were the quote-unquote Boston Whirlwinds. Okay. All right. They were the, the, the um, Washington, the Washington generals, generals of the time. time. Yeah. Now, the game was set for August 22nd in the afternoon. Now, McCloy arranged for three C-119 flying boxcars from the U.S. Air Force to airlift the two teams and their floor to Berlin. Okay. They get there in the morning. They got to set up the floor, the, the floor, and they were doing this in Olympic Stadium in Berlin. All right. I've been to Olympic Stadium in Berlin. Really? Berlin. I don't yeah. think you knew that. Fascinating. I, now's not time to tell a story, but it was great. Went up in the big bell tower, everything. Wow. It was great. Now, um, two days before, uh, McCloy puts out a press release announcing that the Trotters would play a special exhibition in Berlin's Olympic Stadium and that Jesse Owens would be accompanying them. Uh, returning for the first time to the site where he had won four get gold medals 15 years earlier. A mission would be free. Everyone was invited to attend. Now, the World Youth Festival had just ended on the 19th, uh, and basketball was not very popular in Germany. And plus, the Germans really stunk at basketball at that particular time. Right. Now, McCloy told... Sorry, Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, McCloy told, uh, told Saperstein he would be thrilled if 10,000 people showed up. Now, they landed in the morning, they were bused to the stadium with a U.S. Army escort, and on the way, a crowd of young Germans end up surrounding the bus, begins to climb through the windows. Abe Saperstein begins to freak out. He's thinking that this is going to be terrible, but this ends up just being youth who heard that they were coming and wanted to touch the players, to be connected with them, to say that they loved them, that they had seen them, that they had heard about them. Wow. Now, they arrived at the stadium early and people were already lining up and filling the stands and by game time which is 2 15 p.m there is an estimated 75,000 people in the stadium this was the largest crowd to ever watch a basketball game at that time and one commentator said the largest crowd ever to see a basketball game in the world was drawn in the former nazi capital by a group of negroes coached by a jew wow is what he was quoted as saying that's wow now the crowd loved the game some tried to fight through the police line barricades to shake hands with the players they tried to get out on the field um they play the first half and at halftime a u.s army helicopter appears over the stadium it circles the stadium three times and then slowly descended into the middle of the field the cockpit door opens and who comes out 
Jesse Owens, and he's wearing a, a stylish cream-colored suit, and the crowd rose and gave him an absolute wild standing ovation. Mm. Now, Owens bowed and waved, and the cheers grew even louder, and uh, then the Globetrotters shielded him from view. They made like a circle around him. Owens does a quick change, and he comes out in his Olympic track uniform that he had worn in that same stadium 15 years earlier. Wow. And the crowd goes nuts. That's so cool. Now, Owens takes a a victory lap and the thunderous applause and cheers, and it's basically a roar of redemption for Germany's past. Right. He ends up uh, his lap, and he does a symbolic broad jump and then was escorted kind of off the field. He ends up kind of hurting his ankle in, in the jump and actually had to be kind of helped by some of the trotters, and he later had to go to the doctor and be treated for this. But he goes to the side of the field, and he goes to a microphone that had been set up on the track just below the box that Hitler had been in giving his opening speech for the 36 Olympics. Mm. And this is what he says. Words often fail on occasions like this, but I remember the good that happened here. I remember the fighting spirit and sportsmanship shown by German athletes on this field, especially by Lutz Long of Germany, the man I managed to beat in the broad jump on my last jump. And now after Owens bested long, uh, the the two men, uh, basically the story is uh, Owens in his last jump is a little bit better than long, but the two men embrace, they walk off the field uh, arm in arm. um, But Hitler is standing uh, there as they're leaving and is kind of staring at them and he's pacing impatiently and he wants to shake long's hands, Mm -hmm. but not Owens horse. Now, Lutz Long ends up being killed in action during World War II, uh, but Owens ended up meeting with his widow earlier in the European tour, and they had an amazing uh, connection. Now, continuing uh, his speech, Owens points uh, above him to Der Fuhrer's old box, and he says, quote, Hitler stood right up there in the box, but I believe the real spirit of Germany, a great nation, was exemplified down here on the field by athletes like Long. I want to say to the young people here to be like those athletes. I want to say to all of you to stand fast with us and uh, to stand fast with us and let us all work together to stay free. And God Almighty will help us in our struggle. That is what the United States stands for. And I know you are with us. God bless you all. And that last phrase, Owen's voice cracks as he's overcome by emotion. Oh, now, it gets even kind of more amazing because at that point, the acting mayor of West Berlin, Walter Schreiber, spontaneously comes out of the stands. He walks over to Owens. He leans into the microphone and he says in German, 15 years ago on this field, Hitler refused to offer you his hand. And now I give you both of mine. Mm. And he tra- he turns to Owens with outstretched hands and they embrace and the crowd roared again. Many of them spilling onto the field, absolutely surrounding Owens and Schreiber to the point that the police had to come and basically rescue them from the crowd. Amazing, right? Wow, that is just incredible. It is, as I read this, for, oh gosh, I'm going to get emotional too. When I read this for the yeah. first time, I never knew this story existed. Neither did I. And it's dang shame that more people don't know this story. Yeah. Um, oh, 100%. It is ridiculous because this is this is the legacy of the Globetrotters in these early days. Yep. 
bringing people together, the community through sport. Yep. This kind of stuff. This is like like we said. There's like two arcs. This really exemplifies the power of the Harlem Globetrotters. Un, uh, unmatched. Correct. It was said that there were very few dry eyes in Olympic Stadium by the time uh, that it was over. Uh, Marcus Haynes would say uh, years later in Sports Illustrated, quote, and the longer you live, the more you know that you will never see anything like that again. If they had cameras like we have now, they would have had something that people could cherish till the end of time, unquote. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the second half of the game was kind of almost trivial at this point, but it ended with the Trotters winning. But the true winner that day was Owens and kind of the German people as well. Um, it took the Globetrotters over two hours to finally get to their bus after the game because everybody was surrounding them. And as they finally boarded, they, they realized one person was missing, and that was Jesse Owens, and he was still standing in a sea of German people signing autographs, wow. which he did for hours. Very cool. Now, this is where it kind of turns a little bit weird. All right. Because the U.S. State Department is so pleased that they send the following message, quote, the Globetrotters have proved themselves ambassadors of extraordinary goodwill wherever they have gone. On any future tours, please call on the State Department of the United States for only for 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 help that we can give. Which sounds great. Yeah. But really what the State Department wants to use is they want to use the Globetrotters as propaganda tools against yeah. against communism. Now, was this within the, 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 the scope of the Cold War probably something that, that was a benefit? Perhaps. But, I mean, but you look at, like, just the intertwining of sports and the Cold War. You have this. You have the U.S.-USSR basketball game in 72. You have the Miracle on Ice in 80. All the blood, of blood in the water, Hungary. The blood of the water, yep. Hungary, and, you know, all of these, all of these events – um, they're all intertwined with sports and politics, so it's not surprising. What bothers me is the U.S. State Department is talking a good game here by using the Globetrotters, this uh, this black basketball team, to bring goodwill and American values to the country at the same time when all the Jim Crow crap is happening on our own soil. Absolutely. Things are not well back home. Racial tensions are spilling over into violence all over the country. Um, the New York Times wrote, quote, it is good that Jesse Owens has received his due as an individual. It will be infinitely better when his people, our fellow citizens, receive everywhere and at all times their due as equal citizens of our republic. And this absolutely goes back to what the Globetrotters were facing when they played in the U.S. I mean, they had to fight for their own cultural battles here. I mean, they were royalty on the court when they went to Europe and they went all over the place and they were globetrotters in the actual real sense. But they were treated like garbage in places that believed in things like Jim Crow and segregation and all of these things before yep. the Civil Rights Act. You know, an example of this in my research uh, coming up for the, you know, for this um yeah, there's an anecdote that I came across about the team in the 50s. Uh, sometime in the mid-50s, uh, they played a game in Martin, Tennessee, in central Tennessee, uh, the University of Tennessee uh, Martin campus. Um, no restaurant in town would serve them. Mm. So after they go play game, you know, to then cheer the, and delight the crowd and all that stuff, 
They end up eating, going and eating bologna crackers and cheese at the back of a supermarket after the game. Terrible. That is terrible. And, you know, you would think that this instance would have said, you know, nope, I'm never coming. We're never coming back here. We're done. You know, we're done with this region. This is garbage, etc. But yet they came back and played at that very same city in that arena back in 1966, a couple years after the Civil Rights Act was passed. Uh, and they follow that appearance in Martin with a second one in 1971 where they played what is arguably the most infamous game in Globetrotter history. Ah. An infamous game that's surrounded by so much mythos, I think. And it really kind of sets up the narrative of the second act of the Globetrotter history, which is why we're going to take a dive into it in the next episode. Right, and we're going to end right about Teaser. there. Teaser, yep. yeah. We're we're gonna we're gonna hold you uh, right there. Um, it is a fascinating story that Richard is going to uh, talk us through in the next episode. J- just amazing stuff. Now, to be honest, Rich, I I glossed over or just plain left out so many details in the first chunk here in this first act, and I do want to make a mention of one of the great resources that I used in putting a lot of yes. uh, this together, and that's a book entitled "Spinning the Globe" by Ben Green. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's not a short book, uh, but it is filled with so many fascinating stories and tidbits. Um, and of, of course, um, we, we're we about through act one of basically a three-act show here of the Globetrotters. We'll, we'll yeah. get to, uh, in their history, act two and act three um, kind of uh, uh, next uh, time. So, uh, Rich, before we close up, any final thoughts? Just This is just incredible because I think... Even, you know, when you think of uh, the Globetrotters, the first act is really kind of just almost an afterthought. And when it is brought up, it really doesn't carry the gravitas of what they were about and how they were used and how they were utilized, not only as a means of ambassadorship for the country, but also an important factor of growing basketball, this, you know, fledgling sport, this league that was struggling and Mm -hmm. would continue to have struggles. And again, we'll get into this in the second half, just the Globetrotters' importance in growing the sport of basketball and the influence it has on the NBA doesn't change with the NBA's growing with Russell's dynasty in the 60s. It is still strong, and it remains strong and we'll see some of that yeah the influence of the globetrotters is still felt today if you are an nba fan if you're a basketball fan you can really thank the globetrotters for making basketball what it is yeah yep Amazing. Well, we're going to hit the music here and we're going to close this up. Thanks again so much for taking the time to listen. If you do have a topic idea for us, if you want to chat, agree with, disagree with us, uh, please send us an email. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, We do promise to be more regular in posting new episodes, um, mostly because we're on a podcast network now and we have to. Yeah, Uh, part of that is part of the delay, too, was because we were doing all this behind the scenes stuff to get on Electrocast and we're so excited excited and so looking forward to bringing more content 
with the you know in the context of the Electrocast uh, podcast family. Absolutely, our goal is to uh, to be posting once a month from here on out. But you know, the research takes a lot of time. Uh, if you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please leave us a review. That would be super helpful. If you do want to uh, help support us financially, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash athletic obscura. You can buy us a coffee, and we may or may not use that on coffee. We might use it on tacos or beer or pizza. Who knows? Uh, you can connect with us on Twitter at Athletic Obscura. We post weird, strange, and unknown tidbits just about every day, and I'd be happy to connect with you guys there. If you're interested in sponsoring the show in a more substantial way, you can uh, reach out to us, and we'll get you in contact with the Electrocast family of shows. Uh, again, like Richard said, we're very, very excited to be part of the Electrocast podcast network. You can ch- uh, check out all the shows at electrocast.com slash podcasts. There's lots of great things there if you want to check them out. And I can't wait until next time when we invite you into another discussion of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. Adios, everybody. Take care. See you next time. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Electric acid.